I don't think that the alternative is some kind of um, wishy-washy pluralism, which says there are all sorts of multiple problems and um, there is over here this and over there that and, and so on and so forth. I'm trying to really insist on following a materialist Marxian structural method, but to sort of expand what counts as the structure of the system. And so I'm trying to show how many uh, gender issues that feminists care about, how many issues that anti-racists care about, how many issues that environmentalists care about, that Democrats care about, and so on and so forth, how these are really all tied together because they all arise in a non-accidental way from one and the same social system. Welcome back to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith. We've got a new format for you. This is the TPS Roundtable. Uh, we have some of the greatest thinkers in the world on this program, but we very rarely get to digest and think about and, and talk more about what they've said. We just keep swimming forward like a shark. Uh, but not today. We, we, our uh, Patreon supporters have uh, an interview with Nancy Fraser, uh, one of the foremost feminist and Marxist theorists, uh, theorists working right now. It's called The Two X's. Uh, if you want to listen to it immediately, then please get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and support independent radical media. Uh, it'll be released to the public in uh, a few weeks anyway. Uh, but today we're talking about that interview. We're talking about the work of Nancy Fraser in general. And I'm joined by some great friends to the show, Julie Boyce Kay, uh, who is a media and communications lecturer here uh, in the UK, uh, and also uh, a, an extremely interesting academic feminist. We have Mariah Fannebecker, who is my own co-author uh, on that book, Work Want Work, uh, as well as Jilly's co-author on some very interesting uh, work as well. And Ollie Haynes, our man in the movements, returning guest to the popular show, uh, find his work in Navarra Media, Tribune, Jacobin, all the good places. Uh, uh, the journalist of protest, as I've referred to you before. Thanks very much, friends, for joining us on TPS Roundtable. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Everyone okay? Yeah. Good. Absolutely. There's some nodding. There's some nodding. Um, that's that's excellent. Well, uh, I've, I've sort of directed people to what the, the interview is and, and uh, um, who Nancy Fraser is a little bit, but maybe, Julie, I can bring you in first of all. Um, could, could you introduce Nancy Fraser to the listeners who we want, we want them to go out and find out more about her, read her work? Um, what's her significance from your perspective as a, a feminist working in academia? Yes, thanks. Thank you, James. Um, yeah, well, Nancy Fraser, I think, is is like you've, you've indicated, like one of the most significant um, Marxist and feminist uh, thinkers in the world today. And um, so, and she's obviously a professor that's known for her work on feminist theory, political theory, um, contemporary French and, and German thought. Um, but from my point of view as a kind of academic feminist in specifically in feminist media and cultural studies, she's been really significant in my kind of thinking and my work. 
Um, and I first read her book, uh, Fortunes of Feminism from um, State Managed Capitalism to Neoliberal Crisis uh, when I was doing my PhD about 10 years ago. And she's been really for formative for all of my sort of thinking um, since then. And what I found really uh, useful and valuable in that book, Fortunes of Feminism, is this really provocative question that she asks about feminism, which is, um, is it just a mere coincidence that um, neoliberal capitalism and second wave feminism prospered in tandem? Or as she puts it, could there be some kind of perverse subterranean affinity between those two things? And she acknowledges this is an heretical kind of question to be asking, but also a very kind of important one for helping us to think about what's happened to feminism in a very broad sense since the second wave, since the sort of 60s and 70s and the sort of um, Anglophone West, really. Um, and this, this book sort of yeah, charts the feminist movement from, from the sort of 60s um, onwards. Um, and, and what it argues is that from a kind of a grounding in, in, in socialism, in the new left, in those kind of early days of second wave feminism, what's happened is that certain strands of the second wave feminist movement have split off and she, she calls it going they've gone rogue um, so they've split off from that movement from that grounding in socialist politics and have become co-opted by being by neoliberal capitalism um, and so feminism she argues has kind of been re-signified as something which is compatible with neoliberal capitalism so particularly in its particularly the kind of aspects of feminism which are about the sort of critique of traditional authority um, and a critique of the welfare state um, and the family wage. And those kind of aspects have been sort of taken away from their socialist grounding and have kind of given this kind of romance or gloss, this kind of romantic gloss to, to neoliberal capitalism. Um, and the other thing which I think has been really important in Nancy Fraser's thinking and what she kind of articulates and clarifies really importantly is that feminism in its kind of, in its in its ideal form is a is both about the politics of recognition about kind of about status about you know things like identity and culture but also crucially about redistribution so about economic justice as well and her argument is that it's this re redistributive dimension which has been lost in the kind of the shift to neoliberalism um so and that's really significant and that's the kind of i think what's really valuable is that she insists that it that it must always it must always be both um must always be about both of those things um and so for her though i had these ideas about recognition identity cultural difference have sort of become co-opted they provided this romantic gloss for this new phase of capitalism um but what we need to do she argues is reclaim uh, reclaim feminism for the left it has to always have that redistributive economic kind of dimension um, and, and I find her really useful because there's a tendency sometimes in my field of feminist media and cultural studies to only think about feminism as pertaining to recognition, identity, culture, cultural difference and so on. Um, and this is linked to her idea about capitalism, about how we should think about capitalism as not only a kind of economic system, but also a social system. Um, so when we think about capitalism, we should think not only about the kind of official economy, but also about what she calls it background conditions of possibility which she talked about in the podcast so things like um social reproduction and care um also nature um so these things which business kind of free rides on and doesn't cover the cost the costs of um but which are nonetheless fundamental to to the to the operations of capitalism 
And I think so this book, Cannibal Capitalism, which you discussed in, in the podcast, really expands this idea of thinking, or develops this idea of the, insisting that we must think about capitalism and have an expanded conception of capitalism, which thinks about it not only in terms of kind of economic injustice, but also ecological injustice, gender injustice, racial injustice, all of these kind of different dimensions. And I think that's what's really valuable about her work is that she thinks about, you know, this, this very expanded idea of capitalism and therefore a very expanded idea about socialism. And this is socialism must also be anti-racist, must also be feminist, must also uh, struggle for ecological justice. So I think what's that's what's really valuable about her work. She thinks about all these different dimensions of justice and injustice. But, but also then argues that we have to sort of think about it in a single frame. And what and, um, when we think about all of those different dimensions of injustice, political injustice, racial injustice, gender injustice, ecological injustice, all the roads lead back to capitalism. So actually, so what we need to think about is injustice in this single frame of, of capitalism, but this expanded notion of capitalism. So I think that's for me why she's just so valuable in really crystallizing and clarifying the sort of the multi-dimensional nature of the crisis, but also that there is a single way that we can think about that that crisis too. I, I really agree with that, and and I, I do think that that new book, Cannibal Capitalism, uh, is is quite an extraordinary synthesis actually of um, her thinking on, as you, as you just put it, that expanded sense of what capitalism is and how it works. Uh, from the other side, it, it also offers a series of correctives I think to a lot of very woolly uh, thinking on the left uh, and the book takes us through some of the kind of the big standard preoccupations and, and topics and, and um, sort of returns the Marxist ingredients to them race care and, and, and feminism the environment uh, and finally the question of democracy uh, Ollie can I kind of bring you in for, for the perspective um, from the, uh, the the grassroots uh, kind of protest world. I, I put it to um, Professor Fraser in the interview that her, her book was um, contains sort of a, a, a critique or a, a gentle criticism of the way a lot of people on the contemporary left are approaching these these topics and these habitual kind of areas of protest. You, your work is really at the the cutting edge of what's going on in especially environmental protest. I, I wondered. Um, whether in the book or, or, or Nancy's uh, writings on the environment in the NLR, um, New Left Review, or indeed in the interview, how, how you sort of saw the way she's talking about protest and the way she's talking about how we approach environmentalism specifically, how you kind of saw that from your own perspective working with, uh, working with these, new, um, these new kinds of protest? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm going to meander slightly, but... I, there's some stuff I'd like to slightly push her back on and there's stuff that I very much agree with. So I think the critique of Chantal Mouffe and politicism that she puts forward is very interesting because I would kind of consider separating out the question of radical democracy from the other questions that she's trying to link back to capitalism. Because I would, I would argue, I guess, that the question of radical democracy can do some of the like linking work between people that class also does and that she's trying to get class to do. Because where some of the other questions she gets at, while very important and like integral to the structure of the system that she's describing, this expanded conception of capitalism, if they're posed badly or articulated badly, they can be divisive of a kind of movement or a, a social block. I think that um, like radical democracy can 
I like be like a, a link making um, question, basically. Like, I don't think it's an accident that the Gilets Jaunes, which was a coalition of working class and petty bourgeois people, very, very quickly formed this radical democratic, though admittedly not a socialist program, but a, you know, a radical democratic program of renewal that the vast bulk of them agreed to. And so I don't, oh, go on. Uh, I was just going to jump in to just clarify some of that for the uh, for the, the listeners who might not be up to speed on Chantal Mouffe. Um, the 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 last section of um, I'm going to call her Nancy, as as we're such great pals. Uh, the the last section of, of Nancy's book um, is, is, as you say, on on what she calls politicism, the the danger of um, left critique. Um, sort of acting as if if we could just correct our political processes if we could only get Jeremy Corbyn a fair hearing in front of Britain's institutions then we could compete in normal bourgeois elections win and transform the state from there that 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 is part of um the the, the move and and Ernesto Leclau analysis uh, and their their recommendation of left populism that was for many of us, uh, me included, part of the theorization that was made in the last few years on how uh, formations like Bernie Sanders, Corbyn, Podemos, uh, etc., could could work. Um, and, and Fraser ends the book with a, a kind of critique of what the limitations of that were. I, I, I get I get from um, you, Ollie, that the part of the maybe a blind spot for. Uh, Nancy Fraser in that analysis is that for a lot of the protest movements, especially in France, Chantal Mouffe is not just a kind of academic thinker abstractly diagnosing how left politics can relate to the state, but is actually sort of you know carried in the hearts of activists in a in a in a quite unusual way and in a way that we're not really familiar with seeing in in Britain, a kind of relationship between the, the theory and the protesters um, there. Maybe you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she's known in some circles as Mélenchon's philosophe. So she's like the um, the like court philosopher of La France Insoumise, the movement of Jean-Luc Mélenchon. She's friends with Mélenchon uh, directly and she's very close friends with François Ruffin who is, I think, one of the more interesting uh, politicians in the France Assumis. And we talked about him last time as being a kind of potential successor. So like when you talk to La France Assumis activists and all of these people are like, La France Assumis is a very interesting movement because it's, um, although it is this left, left populist political movement, all of its members also have kind of uh, like ties to various other, it's quite porous. They have ties to various other parts of the left in France. and something quite interesting about La France Insoumise is that they have like a, a very popular show approach to who they will share platforms with uh, a lot of the time. So the, like they, while being uh, kind of firmly leftist and left populist, they they are not afraid to stand with people who they disagree with and, and stuff. So like uh, Chantal Mouffe, I think in particular, and her conception of populism is very important to a lot of these people in terms of how they think about politics, particularly in France, but also everywhere, because they want to do this linking work of bringing people together to construct the people. Um, and, you know, we can disagree on whether or not the people is a useful idea, but I would I would say that uh, in a kind of time of total, like disaggregation of people, of like uh, there not being like an obvious active working class that the people is quite useful, and so while Nancy Fraser isn't necessarily wrong about the structure of the system, 
Um, I don't see her framework and MOVE's emphasis on radical democracy as incompatible. And so she, MOVE might be wrong where she, when she suggests that like class is just one link in the chain as opposed to like needing to run through the whole chain. But she's not wrong about the use of the people and the democratic demands. So in the case of the Gilets Jaunes, the, the, the people became a way of expressing class, basically. And the radical democratic impulse of the, the program that they kind of put forward became a way of linking people together into a movement that actually proves Nancy Fraser's point about in the Climates of Capital essay about the hegemony of cars and the necessity of linking class politics to environmental politics. And then that all being said, the critique of Fraser, I would, I think the kind of base materialism that Fraser deploys and her expansion of Jason Moore's like world ecology idea is extremely useful in thinking through political responses to the crisis. Because she talks about capitalism through writing on nature and the links to colonial extraction, where she talks about somatic and exosomatic regimes. And in your interview, she says that behind Cupertino, where Apple's headquarters is, stands Kinshasa, where coltan for iPhones is extracted in slave mines. And in the Climates of Capital essay, she breaks down pre-industrial labor and some labor today in the global south into its like component parts of like biomass plus human or animal muscle. And then the labor in the industrialized areas is biomass plus human muscle plus converted fossil energy. And I think this is useful because it gets very sort of very right to the heart of how human societies interact with climactic conditions. And so to bring that back to the movements, a very interesting example of workers understanding this is the GKN factory occupation in Italy. So workers were fired. I like I'm sort of working on doing something on this right now, but it's not been uh, not come out yet. Great. But workers were fired by GKN, which is this car parts firm, um, and they used the they used net zero as the justification for making all these redundancies. Um, there was also a similar move that happened in Birmingham, same same company, uh, same sort of justification. The workers in Birmingham tried to present a plan, the kind of Lucas plan style thing to take over their factory didn't work. The workers in uh, Florence did the same thing, but then they occupied their own factory and then uh, this ongoing factory occupation for like several years now, like two years, I think. And um, they're trying to cooperatize it and take it over. And they presented a plan to convert from car parts to solar panels and e-bikes. Um, and this could be like an issue for like a kind of eco-socialist left if, if what what the kind of workers uh, takeover looks like is uh, democratic control in the core, but mineral extraction in the periphery. But what they're doing is they're partnering with a German startup uh, that's aiming to experiment with new materials to avoid extraction from the global south. And I, I kind of think this also points to the importance of radical democracy. Like if this kind of experiment fails, Fraser's world systems analysis then poses very different, difficult questions for eco-socialists. If the exosomatic utopia relies on mineral extraction from the South, how is that going to be implemented? How is it going to be democratic? How is it going to be done in a fair way that doesn't exploit the global South? And are there enough minerals to go around to have this, uh, like kind of, you know, solar punk utopia, whatever, like, um, <coughs> like how can societies be designed to maximize both maximize both resource efficiency and democratic control and quality of life for everyone, not just people in the core. And then uh, like one final point, I guess, is that in terms of the wider politics of the environmental movements that I report on, I'd like to say it's like fairly muddled and often very middle class, which isn't inherently an issue, but it does lead to blind spots like uh, middle class people taking actions from against fossil fuel giants is to be welcomed. But I think examples like GKN, where Labour organizes itself, or the instances where environmental movements like the French ones or some clusters within Just Up Oil 
kind of join arms with Labour, point to the future more than the like apolitical, conservative, unmaterialist environmentalism that we talked about last time. And so like where Fraser talks about appropriate expropriation of free riding, the political response to that shows both like quite a lot of promise and a lot of potential to go wrong. So in France, there's this ongoing dispute over mega basins, um, which are like man-made reservoirs, which are not very efficient at storing water. They drain the water table massively. Uh, they've provoked a kind of massive response from environmentalists, radical trade unions, and the small farmers. And they're a very, it's, it's a very good example of capitalism free riding on nature and eating its own conditions of life, because it involves the expropriation of water from everyone very efficiently into the hands of a few agribusinesses while damaging the water table further, which will then make it more difficult for these businesses to operate. So the kind of reaction to that, the class coalition involved, the radicalism of the sabotage that people are taking are very interesting responses to the problem that Fraser discusses. But this like very defensive politics can also spiral into like some of the more excessive areas of degrowth. Um, and I think some of the degrowth visions have like valuable things to say, but some of the politics that this defensive posture provokes tends to be like quite romantic, quite like pastoral, anti-urban, even anti-civilization. Um, and then like, it's not too far off, like very deep green ideas that are associated with like some quite unsavory things. And so like, for example, French climate activists uh, sabotaging um, concrete plants at the moment. And there's like plenty of good reasons to do this. Uh, but then the like where they take that ideologically spills over into a total rejection of concrete and the like fixation on water defense, yeah. which is like, very valuable, very like very worth doing has also led them to oppose high-speed rail. So like um, in terms of the actual politics of these movements, like it's on the one hand, very, very like strategic, speed oriented, uh, like radical and interesting. But on the other, they're, they're like that energy can take itself into some quite like weird and I would guess like not necessarily great places. Well, that's great. So we've got some of the permutations of um, the um, the novelty and the application of Fraser's analysis for feminism and where that is at the moment, uh, and also um, the way in which it, it it's both useful and in dialogue with the current and very fast-moving state of environmental activism. Mariela, can I bring you in to maybe reflect on um, how this applies to um, where the left is more broadly? We, um, when we were writing Work Won't Work, uh, uh, were very engaged with Fraser's analysis of care and social reproduction and how that has fed into um, a, a lot of the kind of utopian Post left, uh, sorry, post work theory coming uh, uh, from uh, the left in recent years. This new book has um, this wonderful uh, analysis of the concept of expropriation, which we'll get into a bit more in a bit. And that I, I think we both maybe found this satisfying. That that sort of answers um, or, or clarifies the things that we were saying in our work about the kind of dark. Um, demonic other side of the fantasy of post-work, which is the new ways in which um, people can be violently kicked out of economies altogether in a process that we refer to as disemployment. Um, so I, I don't know, Mariela, maybe I could just hand over to you for, for kind of what you're thinking about that sort of more macro view uh, might be. It, yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, James. I mean, first of all, thanks for this great interview, uh, which I found really useful for continuing to think about these things. And it's just really fun also to see you talking to all of these um, big names, especially on the from the um, 
the new left boomer sort of side of things and uh, and um, seeing them you know like go into this go into this podcast or oh, another podcast oh. and then um, they get more and more excited as they like, go through the thing and then are very excited about this unexpectedly high level of discussion they get and at the end they, they really do seem to want to go down the pub with you which uh, we treat them nice we treat them nice on the popular show. <laughs> um you know like um Adolf Reed, Juliet Mitchell, Nancy Fraser, all of them. So, yeah. Um, now, I mean, Nancy Fraser, what a woman, you know, best kind of new left boomer, really. Um, now, there she is having spent these decades from within her own cohort and pointing out um, that said cohort is not thinking big enough um, when it comes to resistance to capitalism. And she's not doing it in a kind of arsy contrarian way. And, you know, we all like contrarianism to an extent, um, but in this really kind of patient political education. Um, and when she does this broad brushstroke systemic Marxist analysis, um, just really shows what, you know, what has been subject to this sort of um, cultural amnesia um, at the very beginning of these left movements um, and these kind of ossified um, sort of... Um, political um targets that you know just have just kind of left behind the actual marxist analysis that that um, informed them in the first place so I, I really do think that expropriation is the big one from this book and obviously the one that's most uh, you know um, sits most most neatly to the to the work that we've done in in, in our book um yeah so two things i th i think um that are useful for the future but again maybe it's just useful to reiterate for that this you know the point of this idea of expropriation and um, the way in which she does turn like you bring out so well in the interview as well towards the conditions of the possibility of capitalism that stand behind the exploitation inherent in the wage relation and i feel like one of the real services that she renders us there is that she de-essentializes um political discourse and political um you know preoccupations of our own time i should also say jilly you've been telling me to read nancy fraser for not just 10 years maybe more like 15 years and i do remember very clearly thinking i was far too cool well it's not post-structuralist feminism is it mm -hmm. it's about 2010 or something so um you definitely won won this one uh, in a in a in a big way so um yeah so okay it does you know in a, and i do think this comes out really well in the interview it does de, de potentially de-essentialize um, preoccupations like race, gender, etc., because it, she does make this very clear, especially once you press her on it, that no, it isn't race that capitalism needs. What it needs is the possibility to racialize either a marginalized population or, you know, a kind of stratum within a population in order to get their labor, not cheaply, but for free. Why does it have to do that? Because it needs to maximize profits to such an extent to be able to achieve the concentration of wealth, which is systemically always required for capitalism to go on. And that's just one of those, the same thing does apply to gender because does capitalism need to be sexist? Well, it doesn't need to be sexist in some sort of essential patriarchal sense. However, it does have that necessity of free social reprodu reproduction, of free care work. It doesn't really matter who does that care work for free, but somebody has to do it, so obviously, patriarchal capitalism was a neat solution to that. 
when we get to those other two pillars that you also discuss in the interview, like the most obviously important one being non-human nature, I guess what stands out there is, is that there really was no rhetorical concealment necessary. It was easy enough to just take the nature, to just, you know, to just yeah. tap into that as another source of, um, you know, um, free wealth, as it were. Um, and then, I mean, one that you did talk about a little bit, but not so much, and I think it's also really interesting that she brings in the state as the fourth pillar of um, that, you know, of capitalism, and that that is also a site of expropriation in her language. You know, we don't have to quibble about the term; it's just that's the one she uses, and it's and it's useful uh, structurally. So that yes, the state does promise democracy, but it doesn't deliver it. Obviously, it is there to um, to administer the space in which capitalism can happen. Um, and I think um, now, okay, in our book, we we talk about, you know, we talk about um, the putting to work of everything we do, the colonization of every aspect um, of our lives. And when I think about how this kind of phrases term of expropriation really might push this kind of analysis of work and of how work spills into uh, life beyond work, um, there were just really two things, I think, and I'd really like to to hear what you guys think about that. The first one is to do with her very sort of uh, direct political demand for uh, an eco-socialist movement and for an eco-socialist sort of eco-political, she says, eco-political common sense. So basically the question of a mass movement in this moment of obviously climate crisis and various other crisis, uh, crises of capitalism. And I guess I was interested in um, this question of a new kind of link between the brutal way in which capitalism obviously taps into human life and non-human nature that might be like um, promised by her um, by her way of, of theorizing things. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, workers dying in the heat in Spain and Italy right now don't need anybody to tell them that there's a link between. Uh, the way in which the climate's heating up and the way in which that is caused by capitalism and their own personal exploitation. So I guess, and, and you know, Ollie's work obviously shows that there's more and more going on on that side, regardless of, you know, whether it's a kind of um, grassroots sort of resistance as, as those striking workers in, in Southern Europe right now, or whether these are other kinds of movements. But um, I guess it kind of occurred to me that, you know, it would be useful from an eco-socialist perspective to actually make it clearer that human life itself is obviously being tapped into, brutalized, destroyed, expropriated in the same way as non-human nature is. So a kind of denaturalizing of human life, which then I guess my idea was, don't know how, how well this would actually pan out, that it would make it easier for people, normal, ordinary workers to see their own exploitation as connected to that bigger natural destruction because you know they're part of it I guess I mean how much that could be politically actually deployed I don't know but that I guess was the idea um and then the other thing so that also I guess would be the more hopeful way of looking at it that there might be some potential there the other one is actually kind of slightly less hopeful but useful for critical thinking I, I think and that's that she does obviously mostly emphasize this idea that expropriation and exploitation work alongside each other and it's a systemic aspect of capitalism. But obviously that's not a static thing. It is heating up. We all know that expropriation is expanding 
ever further into traditional realms of exploitation of, of the wage relation. And with that obviously comes a kind of an experience of downward mobility, which is something I'm very interested in. Um, and I guess we might say that, and, and you touched on that in the interview, that that is a kind of form of de-racialization de in the sense that when there was previously that sort of neat way of dividing large groups of people, according to whether they were being merely exploited or also expropriated, those things are kind of merging in various ways. And I guess the example uh, you and uh, Nancy Fraser talked about was that of the question of how that pans out in America, where kind of white workers don't necessarily now suddenly ally themselves with black workers just because they're also now experiencing the same kind of or increasing forms of expropriation rather than just exploitation. But of course, there's that sense of an entitlement to something that's lost. So I guess the the question here, and that's obviously just one example, would be in how far is um it doesn't, it wouldn't appear that the kind of heating up and the kind of increasing speeding up of that expropriation in the capitalist economy is not necessarily a recipe for political alliances of different interest groups or even just different social movements or just different people who arrive at that moment at the bottom of the pit from different directions and in how far that would then pan out in terms of like um and battling uh, battling against climate crisis etc i guess is a, is a tricky one but yeah that's that's how far i've got yeah i i think that, that that's extremely um useful just for the sake of um listeners maybe i can just clarify the um that, that's what the two x's are the exploitation expropriation um uh, thing that, that nancy fraser deploys uh before asking you guys a little bit more about what you made of that theorization so um fraser reminds us that for marx the elementary transition um into capitalism is when you stop um, having societies based on deriving value um, principally through expropriation, enslaving people, um, forcing them to work on your land, uh, nobles taking what they want by force. Uh, when you when you um, transition to capitalism, you transition to exploitation. The workers are now on their own. They're nominally free, even though there's a kind of blackmail involved where they have to sell their labor on exploitative terms in order to survive. Um, many people uh, have observed this, but Fraser is particularly great at pointing out that you don't simply leave expropriation behind when you move into exploitation, rather hybrid forms of the two kinds of value extraction continue. Uh, and in a way, I think Fraser teaches us that the, the work of tracking capitalism, the work of understanding the um, form of production in which we're living in at a given moment, is um, is the work of understanding that hybridity, understanding how exploitation and expropriation free, freely given work under um, exploitative um, terms and the things that you're forced into doing, the things that are taken from you by force, the, the hybrid way in which those two things are working together at any given moment. Um, if, if, I think Fraser speaks very interestingly in the, in the discussion about the kind of gradations of expropriation that, that are going on, um, uh, even as the book is kind of very neatly um, <clears throat> divided into showing how expropriation um, is occurring in the areas of race, gender, the environment, and democracy and the state. Um, I, I, if, if I may, I, I'll just give a sort of bit, 
bit of a, an interpretation of those um, uh, gradations here. Expropriation in its kind of pure form, we might say, exists today in modern slavery, uh, uh, when people are, are, are literally forced to do things that um, to, to do what, what looks from the outside like conventional work that they're not then paid for. Um, the, the, the next kind of layer of expropriation, we might say, um, is the commodification of surplus populations through debt, uh, whether on a national level or on an individual level, um, and uh, through through drug addiction uh, is another kind of example of that, uh, I, I think, uh, the opioid crisis um, um, most of all. In this situation, you've got large groups of people that capitalism can't obviously productively force into working or can't obviously kind of put into conventional labor and so it turns it commodifies them it turns them into a money-making uh, herd through other means both of these forms are extremely violent um the third layer of expropriation I, I, i've come to think of as negative expropriation that is to say the withdrawal of rights and protections um nancy fraser in the interview says that in america at least this tends to be especially racial, but I think the examples that we spoke about in, in our work, Marila, um, the, the removal of ordinary expectations of citizenship that has um, accompanied uh, the austerity regime in, in Europe after the financial crash, what we spoke about in the, in the German edition of the book of the way that COVID made a lot of excuses for removing ordinary expectations of rights and citizenship. This is a kind of negative expropriation where you're not protected from potential expropriation in the way that you used to be. And finally, th there's a kind of soft expropriation of um, the way that capitalism appropriates or free rides on the stuff that we're willing to do for free. Most obviously mm -hmm. taking care of family, relatives, social reproduction. That's a kind of, Nancy, uh, uh, she holds back from quite calling that expropriation in the interview, but it's it's obviously kind of on, on the spectrum um uh of it so i i don't I, I think that this is absolute genius and this is the this is the um this is the dyad this is the concept that the hybrid of expropriation and, and exploitation this is the thing that the that we need to grasp in our in our um approach to um the left whether academic or um activist um based but um julie maybe i can bring you back in first uh, if, if you wanted to come back on that at all or, or or how how you sort of saw that development in in fraser's work this new emphasis on expropriation yeah no i think you're right it's an extremely useful way to kind of <clears throat> uh, to think about the direction that, that capitalism has been go going particularly in relation to race and i guess um, and I think what Mariah's point about the way that she de-essentializes uh, race and gender and the ways in which, you know, it's it's about how capitalism racializes particular populations so that to, to have this kind of cheap fund of uh, cheap fund of wealth. But I, but I noted that in the in the podcast, she did still insist that there was, you know, even though that has become somewhat muddied with the kind of uh, with with this less 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 clearly racialized kind of division between exploitation and expropriation there is still a color line aspect to that in the kind of way that it manifests today so in the US I think the example that she was giving was the kind of the much higher rates of incarceration of black people in the US is still something which is intrinsic to the way that capitalism works in the US um, today um, and and I guess the point about why is this not then leading to some kind of um, 
you know, racial and class solidarity as that, uh, you know, as these, as this kind of binary becomes less <clears throat> binaristic. Um, and and the point that she made there was that what the, the what blocks the path to that kind of that that solidarity that that you might hope might occur in that situation is I think she talks about it as kind of white rage white nationalist rage, this kind of um, uh, this turn this kind of turn to a kind of grievance or like um what what Michael Kimmel calls like aggrieved entitlement that you know as as white workers kind of lose the privileges which they once had under capitalism when they were merely exploited and not expropriated as they kind of lose those privileges that manifests as kind of as rage as resentment and not for the kind of um not for the kind of the the class and, and racial solidarity that you might hope so I guess that I, I thought that was very interesting about what's 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 blocking that? And and for her, it yeah. Was like just to jump just jump in on that. I mean, I I, I held out Walter Ben Michaels to see if she uh, had anything to say about yeah, about him, or maybe she knows him, because of course he would say that you know, that's all true. The other side of it is that you've also got um, a, a kind of you know if if racism is being used in the way that it, it has always been used, and and the, the way it was invented to be used to keep. Um, poor whites and blacks from recognizing their own mutual interests. There's also a way in which certain forms of liberal anti-racism in the final analysis have um, actually been part of the same project. So the way that, uh, you know, professional class anti-racism training is there to tell you that there's something in inherently and racially um, racist about white people, um, that the whole kind of idiom of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, uh, your Robin D'Angelo's, et cetera, et cetera, means that, yeah, even on the, on the kind of the liberal side, there's a kind of, uh, there's an ideological convergence, um, that, that is also contributing, um, uh, to all that. Um, but, but sorry, I'll let you continue. Oh, no, no. Well, I mean, yeah, and like she likens that, doesn't she, to uh, sort of similar to the way that neoliberal feminism works and, you know, the kind of glass ceiling kind of feminism. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought, I think. But um, uh, I it's I guess I guess going back to the kind of the thing about her her emphasis on redistribution and recognition, I think it is really probably important to note that that things like you know diversity initiatives, in and of themselves, are, in, are not intrinsically kind of problematic or leading towards neoliberalism. It's when they become, it's when they become, it's when they lose their grounding in that broader kind of class politics, socialist politics, that they become problematic. There isn't something inherently wrong or uh, or reactionary or or anti left about i guess about about diversity initiatives so i think i think that's where her kind of the recognition redistribution kind of uh uh prism of thinking about justice is quite useful it's not that we want to lose that kind of recognition aspect altogether ollie i, I was curious about whether there's a sort of generational crease uh, that, that you might um that, that you might uh, be able to see in this expropriation uh thesis that, that uh if if the if the pattern is is uh, can be seen like this, that, that kind of post-war state-managed capitalism moment, that, as as Fraser describes it, uh, she you know is as, uh, is as articulate uh, as anybody about why those conditions were unsustainable. But nonetheless, the, the tendency there was to was to at least claim to be bringing people out of expropriation and into mere exploitation. The idea was that you were going to have a situation where everyone was ultimately a normal 
worker, everyone was going to have a certain baseline of protection, whether at the level of welfare or at the level of democracy. Since then, the story of neoliberalism has been the story of increasingly kind of frittering those expectations away. Uh, and in this new kind of um, uh, uh, this kind of cannibal turn, as Fraser puts it, of our late stage neoliberalism or something worse that's coming uh, uh, along instead since the financial crash, um, what you're seeing is an even a, a kind of, as, as Morella put it, a sort of accelerated or heated up um, way in which the kind of casting people out of ordinary protections is taking place. I, I guess uh, you, you're um, the, the activist that you work with and report on and the, the milieu in which um, you operate uh, is one of young activists, young politicized people who see themselves as having been from the very start blocked out of any expectation of a normal future or a normal sort of sense of citizenship or yeah, access to ordinary exploitation as it used to be. I, I wonder if there's that kind of crease in, in, in anything that you've been seeing. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I can go a couple of ways with it. I mean, I like, it made me laugh, your, your final sentence about being locked out of exploitation. I was at a, a music festival uh, a few weeks ago, and people from Acorn came up to me and my friend. And they were said, they, they said, do you have a landlord uh, like that's treating you badly? And <laughs> we, both, we both live with our parents. So we were, oh, we wish. We wish we a chance would be a fine thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like, so I did a piece for The Guardian uh, back in November about the way that, because basically, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, um, if you want to talk about class in The Guardian, you kind of have to add another frame to it a lot of the time. So I was trying to talk about class and report on class issues, but I was doing it through this generational frame that I don't, I don't necessarily think is always super useful, but it was like an interesting way of sort of seeing how young people were being affected by in inflation, basically. And one of the people that I spoke to for that was this guy, um, Shaf, who's a delivery courier, lives with his family uh, in London because he can't move out. And he was telling me about how um, he got into delivery at the time that everyone got into delivery because it promised high wages, flexibility, uh, like you don't need a union, but like you've got all these brilliant perks. Um, and you can earn a lot of money like being your own boss essentially but what we've seen since then is uh with delivery is what has been called in various instances neo-feudalism techno-feudalism re-feudalization re of capitalism platform feudal feudalism whatever where because actually the work is done through the platform and it's not these like the normal um kind of uh like work arrangements of uh, like that other people have where you have a boss you have a workplace uh because you you work for the platform um these the lack of rights has become extraordinarily visible for these workers and their rights have been kind of stripped away their wages are not determined by contract they're determined piecemeal by gig and this has led to like an extreme driving down of wages um for these platform workers and so what they've done is they've joined the IWGB and um, uh, and are like fighting to unionize to to have 
instead of this like expropriative condition where their their work is becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper um and um that they're now fighting to be exploited basically because they they want status as a worker rather than as this like sort of gig platform surf um so that's one kind of interesting thing that's going on in terms of other kind of generational cleavages that you touched on like we were talking about this the other day um i i i was saying to you that i think there's been a kind of tendency towards anti-politics among the most politicized people of my generation i guess because like um mm. i've moved my the, the limited involvement i have with any activism is through organized now which is attempting to build unions uh lots of people i know have moved into kind of um acorn as i said or 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 like the NEU, that's a that's a big one for like kind of post Corbynites uh, of about my age, um, and uh, so there's been this like refocus on class, I would say, among a lot of people. But this, I think, is itself lended it's like tended towards an anti politics where like people no longer it's 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 like become economistic. Like we're we're only focused on these economic um areas on on worker struggle and whatever uh without any attempts at building like a broader political project and and that's not necessarily wrong like the conditions for political projects seem extremely bleak but i just think that's a kind of interesting um generation so to, to, to put it into uh, jody dean's terms we went from you know mere horizontal crowd with occupy and various protest movements into parties into the aspiration to uh, actually create a coalition to seize state power uh, having been humiliated and insulted in that experiment we've now gone back into the crowd uh, um the, the 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 fact that yeah you you've got um people in their 20s who now only associate uh, in britain and, and america only associate party politics with something that's just going to you know, is is just a complete waste of time and instead these Kind of micro-targeted um, forms of protest. That, yeah, I, I think you're right to call that its own kind of anti-politics, even if it, you know, the justifications for it are, are, are pretty obvious. Um, Mirella, can I bring you back in? I, I'm thinking about um, uh, expropriation still, uh, and, um, and and some of what you were saying. Uh, the, Ollie before was was defending chantal move the, the theorist of the idea that a left populist movement now can kind of short circuit conventional like marxist narratives about social economic transformation seize the state apparatus as it stands and and then yeah. you know bob's your uncle um the it, it's it's interesting that this book does give like quite a powerful critique of that view that all of us held in those humiliating left populist years um but 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 where does it actually take us uh, we, we 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 critique and we critique and ultimately like and i mean what do you come away from what nancy fraser is saying with like the idea that nothing's worth trying except for actual revolution yeah i mean that's an interesting question i mean it is obviously that the horizon when she says well that no there is no i mean she's happier to say there's no democracy under capitalism than she is to say that you know feminism and racism you know um, are you kind of mo modulated by it in various ways? So, I mean, if there's no democracy about capitalism, what are we doing? <laughs> and I mean, it's just interesting what um, just Ollie's description there of the, you know, the diminishing returns that are even there for any kind of attempt to kind of fight for um, 
you know, being included into the exploitation of the workplace when, you know, you have to live with your parents to be able to do to, to, to do any sort of work worth doing. Um, so, so, yeah, and if you then if you then include into that, like some of the, the work that we've done on um, um, care and care homes, actually, in this sort of sense of like the um, um, the very kind of palpable deadliness of those of forms of expropriation that are not at all limited to some invisible margins, but are right in the center of, you know, uh, everyday um, Western middle class life where, um, you know, pe people in care homes, I mean, that's an extraordinary kind of site of, of exploitation that very clearly bleeds into expropriation where the people who work there are absolutely malemployed in our terminology um, and totally underpaid um the people who are there are being massively um have to pay too much for that care have to usually pay for it you know by um selling their houses any kind of wealth that they have that they might have passed on to their children so i guess if we're looking at ollie's situation there given another you know couple of decades and there won't be any parents left who have a house that their children can actually live in <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's uh it's the monty python joke isn't it uh you're exploited by a landlord luxury i have to live with my parents you have parents your parents have a house luxury <laughs> yeah um then on top of that um yeah then on top of that uh i mean just the extraordinary idea that just i mean yes all sorts of forms of of care are monetized but the, the the very process of the dying of the elderly is one of the top um stock market international investment opportunities going that the profit margins are insane that money comes straight out of the crumbling welfare system such as they are so whatever governmental sort of funding this is especially the case in in germany and in, to some extent in france but a bit here as well that there is this sort of municipal and, and uh, national welfare money going into the care homes and there's this private wealth going into them there's incredible amounts of money being hoovered out of the very process of your nan dying in some awful fucking care home that she doesn't want to be in and that don't you don't want her to be in but that she has to be in because the middle-aged people who would normally be looking after her can't because they still have to work in order to survive so this absolute like perfect circle which then of course as we've discussed james um especially in that german introduction to the book um, during COVID really came out with that awful, you know, kind of sacrifice zone of, of the care homes and the, de and the deaths there. So I guess, um, I guess the hope that, to go back to your question, the hope that I get from her kind of big picture analysis is just that it, it seems that from a socialist perspective, it should be possible to re-articulate our goals in a way that do tap back into what people actually experience because it is literally now it really is happening now 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 can uh, never mind that whole cannibal metaphor and um, but now capitalism really is just really eating up you and your kids and your parents and it's it is literal death it's your actual life that is being burnt up in that way increasingly and it's increasingly visible in the you know global north or the west or however you want to put it um and i guess i, I still have some hope that there is room because in, in it's a it's a it's a time issue isn't it we do have to arrive at like a kind of solidarity that does not just come out of having the very same experience of exploitation as it was traditionally the case on the factory floor you know we can't have that can be the only basis of our of of resistance against capitalism as it is today because we're running out of time we can't wait for everybody to hit, hit rock bottom and then turn the whole thing over yeah. um so i guess i feel like there 
But because all these different types of, um, you know, brutalization are coming together as an experience of expropriation, not just, oh, well, I hate my job, but at least I get my wages sort of thing for increasing numbers of people. I do, I do think there's some potential there, but quite how that could pan out, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm interested in the question and I wonder what you think about that, Jilly, whether, because care work is the one thing that's most universal, um, whether that really could become a basis of organizing and even of linking, as you know, Nancy Fraser does point out, I think in, in the actually in the interview, of linking precisely a protest against, you know, climate disaster with those kind of care preoccupations as she suggested it has done in some in some uh, places. Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Um, uh, uh, so my partner works in in care. He's a care mm. worker. And so, um, so I think about this quite a lot. I mean, and one of the obviously the one of the key problems in the care sector is the the lack of unionisation. So it's difficult to see how uh, <clears throat> how unionisation could be a kind of a terrain of of resistance against that. Also, going back to the question about party politics, it seems very difficult to see where that's going to come from at the moment, especially thinking about the UK context where the Labour Party, um, as far as I can tell, has would have would have real no real challenge to this kind of like systemic kind of eating up by capital of the um of the care sector um uh i guess what i've been thinking about recently is some kind of recent kind of feminist sort of thinking about about care um which is potentially going in a more sort of problematic direction which is thinking and then about um how in a kind of desperate attempt to sort of think about how to survive on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, and not and not wait for not wait for, before it's you know before it's gone even any further, is a kind of reorganisation of the kind of gender roles of of the sort of traditional family, so that so that women then come sort of step back up to take you know come back to take those that traditional caring roles, and that's being kind of posited as a kind of as a solution to the care crisis. So that's a kind of direction, I guess, that it's going in where where I think it is really important to to, to keep that kind of deessentialized notion of 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 gender and care and not to kind of revert back to a kind of idea where um you know the capitalist economy is uh the capitalist economy is unable uh systemically unable to pro to provide care for for vulnerable people or for everybody um and therefore kind of society based on uh on a kind of conservative gender binary has to kind of step up to take the flack I don't know so I guess I'm just thinking about how that's that's why Nancy Fraser's analysis is so important like thinking about how uh you know that we can't just fall back onto kind of a romanticized notion of society in order to kind of step up and take the flack from uh mm -hmm. from where capitalism and the economy is failing um so and so Nancy Fraser's um work uh, on Polanyi is quite useful here because she 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 finds Polanyi quite useful because obviously Polanyi is thinking about you know this kind of double movement where <clears throat> um where when uh when society kind of has to step back up to to uh to to re-embed markets in a kind of in a more kind of socially sustainable way but then we can't sort of fall back on a kind of she says we can't fall back on a kind of romanticized notion of society which is there as a kind of bastion or protection against the kind of vagaries of of capitalist uh 
exploitation and expropriation. So I don't really know if that answers your question, but I guess it's 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 interesting to think about where some of these kind of some of these kind of more reactionary responses are coming. You know, to thinking about what we do about the care crisis in terms of gender, and I guess for, from a feminist point of view, it's important to think about you know not just sort of like falling back on this idea that okay what we need to do is go back to a more you know go back to a kind of single earner household where the man goes out to work and the woman stays back and, and looks after all the children and, and the elderly and so on can i come in on this yeah mm. please do um yeah i, I was just going to say julie I, I i really want to get more on tape from you about those new kind of reactionary directions of feminism but let, let's get you back and do that on its on its own on another occasion i'll hand over to ollie to wrap up the round table with some uh, some last questions or points um what i i mean it might not be a wrapping up because I, I want to pose questions to each of you so that's on. okay that's perfect that's well perfect. just to come to come in on the care point um it's like uh as a, as opposed to the kind of mary harrington type vision of of the cult of domesticity and reaction feminism and needing to move back to that single uh parent household there's another kind of vision of care that gets trotted out which is the degrowth vision uh by people like andrea vetta and i was listening to her talk and um basically her vision is for like a sort of completely decommodified care economy but the way she was phrasing it basically seemed to me there was an enormous amount of disavowed labor going into making this caring economy possible that she sort of hadn't considered she was like kind of arguing for dissolving industrial society and then replacing it with care society which uh, frankly it seemed to me a bit ridiculous like I, I don't I don't want to denigrate all of the degrowthers I actually think lots of them have very interesting things to say but um that particular kind of care economy vision I think is a little bit silly when it you know, it ignores the fact that like the hospitals, the care homes, the whatever have to be built, have to be maintained, have to have energy supplied to them, whatever. But I was wondering if, um, uh, Marila, you can probably come in on this. Um, I'll pose all of the questions to each of you actually, and then yeah, do that. That's perfect. okay. Yeah. So, so for Marila, I was like wondering, is is um, is there a need actually for a kind of more commodification of care and as much as like labor is a commodity and a lot of the way that care and care homes play out right now is based on the kind of goodwill of the people working in the care homes where they are asked to go absolutely above and beyond the call of duty constantly and um it is this caring caring impulse that leads like my ex-girlfriend was a carer she she would work um like insane overtime that she wasn't paid for um uh to like because of that kind of na like natural caring instinct so is, is it a case of actually if we were to commodify care a bit more or re-economize care and understand it as as work rather than um this kind of like natural human uh kind of impulse to look after each other that actually that might be a way a way forward i don't know uh then for, for jilly i was wondering if you could talk about the kind of um Fraser's idea of the counter publics, because I'm very like interested, like, does that still apply? The 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 because you're a media theorist, like the in the age of social media where everything's incredibly fragmented, does like I mean I arguably this is a counter public, but like um does does all of that stuff around Habermas still apply when everyone is talking to each other constantly in the public square? And then James, because you're an oh. academic, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about what Fraser's position in the academy is because I I mean I encountered and marinated in Fraser 
for my like consistently for my entire time at university a few years ago but i think that was probably a product of me going to university in the long 2016 and the populism boom like uh which is why i encountered i think her so much because everyone was scrambling to um understand what the fuck was going on and so the essays on hegemony were very useful the like she she sort of brought in the like gramscian ideas but um like has it always been the case that she was so uh like uh kind of eminent on on a, like a political theory course let's do three minutes on each of these uh, i'll do that one quickly i, I mean my my main um, knowledge of um of the academy comes from my day job in english literature I, I i don't know what nancy fraser's ongoing status in um other disciplines uh is julie will know better than i but all i'd say about um the, the world of english um english studies which has um made a big contribution to the direction of um feminist theory is that really i think in the final analysis despite so much uh, outstanding and brilliant work in the final analysis um english literature's feminism has probably contributed more to the hegemony of liberal feminism as julie was describing um the 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 great journal of feminist theory uh signs um set up in the 1970s was set up with funding from the henry ford foundation uh, who obviously saw an ally in the kind of feminism that goes down in my discipline so great socialist feminists that we've had on the show like Juliet Mitchell and like Nancy Fraser they are part of the sideline tradition in feminism they're also part of the sideline tradition in English studies I mean I teach both of those people to English undergraduates but it is not at all common I'm afraid did you want to do yours Jilly because it follows more naturally oh. go last okay yeah sure um yeah so um, I think um, in cultural studies uh, and media studies, yeah, Nancy Fraser, she, she's not a really central figure. There's some like people like um, Joe Littler use Nancy Fraser um, a lot, and Joe Littler's just had a, um, a new book um, um, out called Left Feminisms, in which she has an interview with Nancy Fraser and her work. Is, so Joe Littler's work is really useful and uses Nancy Fraser's work, particularly on care. There's a book by the Care Collective um, who've, who've, who've used Nancy Fraser's theories of social reproduction to sort of um, to argue for for um, a more caring society in a kind of left uh, in the left grounding. Um, the question about counterpublics is really interesting, and I was just thinking I haven't really thought about that kind of particular um, theory of hers. But I mean, it has been, it was really foundational. Um, her sort of famous critique of Habermas in that you know thinking about a public sphere as having you know and 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 the, the need to have kind of radical subaltern counterpublics who 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 kind of go away and formulate their demands and and their needs and then go back to the public sphere and articulate those and and the importance of that for feminism in particular it's interesting because the the only the only way i've seen that used recently um is in a book which i think is a really problematic book um on Mumsnet, which argues that mum um by somebody called sarah pedersen who argues that Mumsnet is a radical subaltern counterpublic is a feminist counterpublic um, coming from an explicit and it's written from an explicitly gender critical kind of position um, so I mean I would say that she's not using I mean I think I want to write about this actually about the way in which that book is really misreading Fraser's, Fraser's um, politics and, and her and her and her notion of a counterpublic but um, 
um so I guess that's all I could say about that it's but it, it's interesting and yeah and actually that was a yeah Fraser's critique of Habermas was actually something which is really foundational for for the way for my for my thinking as well but yes but yeah, thank you for that question I, I yeah I mean that critique has influenced me as a journalist as well mm. just in terms of how you think about who you write about and why so. mm. okay so the yeah the, the big care question I mean of course the last thing we want to do is to romanticize care anymore in terms of this idea of commodifying it further, I mean, I, do, I guess that does go all the way back to, you know, Italian autonomous people like um, Silvia Federici and her, you know, manifesto of wages against housework, where that was the whole idea that you um, denaturalize care, even unpaid care in the home and, you know, show it up as the labor that it is. Now, obviously, um, you know, if we put this in context to, um, you know, Nancy Fraser's book and, and the, the historical moment we're in, I mean, it should be pretty clear that within the kind of capitalism that we're in, there's no way we are going to get, um, without any big changes and without a big fight, um, a version of um, care labour that's well paid for and well remunerated um, without, yeah, without without bigger changes. I mean, I go back to Federici because there's... Um, like she puts it really well in in that uh, manifesto that's got, gotten so much attention recently where she says and James and I talk about that in, the, in our book the problem is that with care work you don't know where love ends and labor starts and obviously that is just the most elegant way of of, of articulating the problem of effective labor and of course that's always going to be the case in care work in the home as well as in paid pay work and you, you do get exploited in that very particular way where you are interpolated not just interpolated as a kind of a moral being but you know you're very yeah why not your very instincts are being harnessed in that way um and now and of course again with COVID, that was the big thing. With the nurses, you know, like calling us heroes just means it's okay when we die, that sort of um, problem. Uh, now, I guess in terms of like outlooks of, of what to do with, with this thing that we've now known for so long for kind of future um, organizational resistance, yeah, okay, we don't want some weird degrowth kind of, you know, um, um, you know, I don't know what commune where everybody does all the care work all the time. And that's all that happens. But if we look at people like, you know, Dylan Riley and other, you know, Brennerite economists in the New Left Review in that ongoing debate, we, when you take into, into account the idea that there is this long downturn and the economy cannot expand any further, we can't really, there can't be any more expansion to profit maybe taking those very hard economic sort of contingencies into account, maybe it is possible actually to um, just to articulate a more politically, um, you know, successful demand that care will have to become its own thing, but not within the economy as it is, but a thing that is remunerate, remunerated but not the totally without outside the profit motive, not obviously in an old fashioned post-war, you know, a social welfare state, but some other version of it that fits more into our context. And that's actually doable. But that sounds like an argument for UBI, Marilla, which pardon? Uh, that sounds like an argument for UBI, which I know. Um, well, I'll, um, I won't comment on that for now. That's just another kettle of fish. That's another, yeah, another mm -hmm. another debate that we can uh, perhaps pick up another time. Well, hopefully we've made the case to listeners uh, for the uh, importance and provocativeness of Nancy Fraser as a thinker, uh, both for thinking and scholarship and uh, indeed activism too. 
uh, if people want to follow up uh, on the interview immediately, get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. We'd love to have you as part of our little podcast community. Ollie Haynes, Chili Voice K, Mariah Fanabecker, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the TPS Roundtable. Thanks, James. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Sorry for the coup at this.